0: Welcome to our podcast series, Talking With Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading.
1: Welcome to season three of the Talking With Traders podcast series with me, Garth McKenzie. Backed by popular demand following the first two seasons, I'll bring you a string of interviews over the next 10 weeks with a number of seasoned traders in my network to give you a first-hand insight into how they trade the world's financial markets so successfully. The first two seasons of this podcast have had over 20,000 downloads of the interviews, so I've used this traction to seek greater global reach for the third season. A special word of thanks must go to our sponsors IG Markets for continuing to fund this podcast and to allow it to flourish. In Season 3 of Talking with Traders, I've gone beyond the borders of South Africa to speak to traders from across the globe. I'll ask pertinent questions of each of my guests to really try and get them to open up about what makes them consistently successful when it comes to taking on the world's financial markets. This episode of Talking With Traders takes us to Mauritius, somewhere we haven't been to yet on, on the series, and uh, our guest today is PJ Sutherland of Sutherland Research. He's an ex-South African who moved to Mauritius a couple of years ago, and uh, I'm really looking forward to speaking to you, PJ. Welcome to Talking With Traders.
0: Oh, God, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for having me. And, uh, you know, we go some way back and I've always respected you as a trader. So to be sharing this platform with you is great. And uh, I might also add that I think what you're doing here is fantastic. Um, you know, any information we can get out
1: in terms of our industry is, is a, good, a good thing. So, so well done for that. Well, thank you. And thanks for agreeing to participate. So Peter, let's go right back to the beginning of your career. Um, What got you interested in trading in the early years and and what sort of path has your career followed since then?
0: Sure. So um, Garth, I've been trading for about 15 years and it was really um, by accident that I ended up in the markets. I never intended to um, trade and I wasn't very familiar with the financial markets. In fact, none of my family traded. I was involved in a family business, property business, and this is back in the sort of 03 to 08 era. If you recall, there was a big bull market in, in um, markets around the world, but also the property market, um, especially in South Africa. So i had done kind of well through that, that era in property and was looking actively to um, invest some excess cash I had. And naturally, one then sort of arrives at the markets and came across a person that was trading the market, had an interesting system. Showed it to me, and I then um, got caught initially from from day one. It sort of captured my heart. So I invested in the system, and off I went. And I think if I recall, it was a really, very simple technical system. It uh, involved the stochastics. So the stochastics had to drop below 20. Uh, You would then go in and buy, and then pop above 20 and get sold. And so off I went. I started first three trades with winners, which is, you know, the worst thing that can happen to one because you start doing all the numbers, and you're going to retire on, on your island. Um, but very soon thereafter, we, um, were confronted with some shorts, you know, popping above 90 in shorts and, um, within days, I've blown up my account. And so that would deter most people. But, um, really that at that time, I knew this was something I wanted to do. It appealed to my analytical mind. It appealed to the risk seeking nature, um, that I have. And it appealed to, um, I just, I think a greater sense of this intellectual puzzle that, that one would look to solve. And so from there, um, you know, I went out. I'd actually sold a portion of business and had enough capital to own my house and, and um, keep going. And so I went into this full time and uh, really struggled initially. You know, the first three years or so, I didn't find any um, enormous success. It was all subjective. I read, as, as most would, a whole bunch of books. I completed the Chartered market Technician Programme. And by all accounts, um, had some skill, but couldn't um, replicate that skill in in the marketplace. And it was at that point that I sort of realized um, I wasn't ever going to be a great subjective trader. And that's what led me to a much more mechanical um, approach. And that started then the journey down uh, what has really come to be known as quantitative finance. And so, um, started testing um, models, you know, went quite far down the road in terms of retail platforms, hit wars there and ended up actually doing a BSc in computer science to improve those, those programming skills and then ultimately got to a point where I started to see some consistency and started to develop a framework that really I, I use to this day um, and still evolving, still learning and through that I've released two platforms um, that you know, end users can employ to manage their, their own accounts and we have some family offices and, and
1: a small hedge fund involved and that kind of brings me up to where I am today. That's interesting. Okay. And, and I, you, you mentioned that um, it was difficult in the first couple of years and, and you um, said that you realized quite early on that you were going to struggle with a subjective trading system. So that's interesting. And that really talks to the psychology of trading. Which I think is, it, it, it's incredibly important. I mean, you and I both know this as traders. Psycho- psychology is probably 80 or 90% of the game. Your, your method, um, what you do, how you choose your entries and exits and all of that is, is all one, It's all wonderful and it's important. But it's actually, uh, psychologically, it's really where the game is at. And your success or failure as a trader has far more to do with your psychological ability to handle the ups and downs um, than, Absolutely. than but, anything yeah. else. Now, 100% so, so from, from that perspective, you then mentioned that you've gone into what you call a, a quantitative finance. Is that right? Quantitative finance approach. Um, exactly. You've got some programming skills. You run two different trading platforms. But can you give us a little bit of insight into what your trading strategy is nowadays? Because I think sure. knowing, for, knowing you as I do and also having chatted to other traders and what have you, your... Um, your approach seems to revolve mostly around mean reversion, which is quite different to a lot of the other traders that we've spoken to. But tell me a bit more about your trading strategy. I'm very interested to hear about it. Sure, with pleasure. So
0: I've spent um, a lot of time, in fact, trading most styles. Um, So momentum, you know, I've done a whole bunch of pairs, arbitrage, etc. But really zeroed in on on mean reversion. It's quite ironic because um, when I first started, that very simple system that I referred to earlier, you know, the stochastics, that really ultimately is a mean reversion type strategy. And so what drew me to um, mean reversion is um, it's short term in nature. So we're exploiting short term mean reversion. The average holds are, are anywhere from three to five days. And in essence, what you, you're looking to do is um, you're waiting for a stock to encounter strong moves in, in one direction. And, and typically that's, that's driven by, by news flow. So it could be going up or down. And then you're looking to take a position counter to that in, in anticipation of um, a move in the other direction, which would be a reversion to the mean. And so um, that type of approach lends itself pretty well to um, all sorts of statistical analysis. And the reason for that is you get quite a lot of um, trades out of the back test because you're typically holding for short periods, you can test a lot across lots of counters and arrive at a database that has numerous trades, and and those tend to be statistically more significant. Um, But one of the the great upshoots of of the inner version is they enjoy high win rates. So, you can see win rates as high as 70, even 80 percent, and you've mentioned psychology, and 100 percent agree with you, psychology, I, I think, almost is everything in this game. Early on, I didn't believe that. And so if you, um, for example, trading a typical trend following or momentum strategy where, where win rates are 30-40%, psychologically those are much more challenging um, to endure. And if you flip that around, you've got the mean reversion profile where you are seeing win rates of 70-80%, psychologically they're much easier to handle um, through time. And so those were the draw cards, of course, with every approach, they're, they're dark sides and, and one needs to make sure you understand what they are and how to, to control them. But That's what drew me to mean reversion. And in fact, the last 10 years, I focused uh, almost exclusively researching uh, mean reversion as as an anomaly across the global markets.
1: It's very interesting. So now, I mean, you're really looking for moves that are outside of the mean, of course. Um, What is that one standard deviation, two, three standard deviations from any given mean?
0: Sure, so I mean, and that that is the starting point. You need to define a mean. And so there are many, many ways you could do that. a very simple example would be a moving average, and as you've referred, you could be you know, a couple of standard deviations away, so you could have a 10-day moving average, and you need to be two, three standard deviations away before you consider entering. You could use volatility to measure that deviation, you could use, um, use even static measures, um, but there are other ways. I mean, you could look at, for example, any of the oscillators, um, if you think of relative strength index, it ranges between 0 and 100, or 50 could be your mean and then you're looking for price to trigger the, the extreme. So, shorts would be above 90 and, and longs below and um, 10, and then you would look for a bounce back to um, the mean, which then would be, of course, 50. You could look at stochastics, there's rate of change. In fact, the method you use um, is not uh, entirely the most important component, there are many ways to capture it. What is important, of course, is how you execute your trades and how you manage um, your risk.
1: Well, that's it, exactly. And that was going to be my next question to you because with this type of, of trading strategy, obviously you are fading those moves away from the mean, which, uh, as you say, it'll give you a 70 to 80% win rate. But the question is what about that 20 or 30% of the time where it continues to move away from the mean significantly? Um, and yeah, and there, there must be times where you've seen that situation where the stock moves two or three standard deviations, but then for some or other that maybe news related, probably is invariably news related, you see a stock that just continues to move far and further and further away from the mean. So you know, I suppose the questions I want to ask you is how do you manage that risk? And then second of sure. all, what, what kind of position sizes do you take when you trade these, these mean reversion trades?
0: Sure. So and that's um that sort of risk you referred to there, Garth, is, is known in the industry as tail risk. And that's that risk. It's, it really is the dark side of mean reversion. You know, it works nine out of ten times and then the you know, the ten percent where you kind of have that elastic band that's stretching and snaps and moves very strongly against you. That's that's the um, The profile of mean reversion that's challenging and one really needs to focus on. So it's news flow that drives all these edges. You're really really waiting for a significant lead. And oftentimes, investors overreact to that news. That's what creates this anomaly. They get overexcited to the upside or too fearful to the downside. So they push these prices to temporary extremes. But the catch is, some of the time, that that emotion is justified. And, and for instance, a company could be going bankrupt or a fraud's uncovered. And there's just no hope of um, a reversion. So then your question is, you know, how do you manage that risk? And quite simply, um, the first approach is you you need to position size yourself um, to allow for that risk. And so what is quite typical in in the momentum or trend following world is to use a stop loss. Um, And that's actually perfectly reconciles with the thesis of momentum. You're buying strength and hope that strength will continue. If you don't see the strength it's perfectly sensible to close out your trade. Mean reversion is quite different because our thesis is, price is moving lower if you're thinking of a long trade. And um, if, it's, if you enter and it continues to move lower, really then your thesis is saying, um, it's become a stronger buy. And so with this type of approach, we actually don't use stop losses, which flies um, obviously in the face of, of convention, but typically when you do that, you're doing something right. Um, and these are not opinions, these are really derived on um, data. So if you test these models out and you implement stop losses, they simply don't work. And the reason for that is they capture too many trades that ultimately do end up mean reverting and providing profit. So they effectively become almost a negative profit stop. So they're locking the loss of a of trade. So that's not the way you want to handle that. And in fact, when you include a stop loss, you really start to move back to a trend following momentum type performance profile. And so the question is, well, how do you deal with this? Well, a simple way is um, when you test these models out and you're hoping um, to test them on, on really big databases. So you know we run our models on, on 50,000 securities from the global financial markets. So we, we have hundreds of thousands, often millions of trades. You can then examine the distributions of, of trade returns from all those trades. And specifically, you're interested in details, tails. Those are the extremes. The so extreme losses or the extreme gains, although that could be more for, for profit stopping, uh, profit stops or, or obviously um, short trades and losses. And from there, you can then set a position size that appropriately allows for that type of loss or sequence of losses across a number of counters um, in future. And then of course, build a buffer into that to allow for those extremes to to be breached. So that's the first thing. The next thing is um, when you build a mean reversion model, in fact, this actually applies to all models. What a lot of traders do is they um, will zero in on a single parameter set. So let's think of our example here um, of relative strength. So drops below 20 or 10, that's your trigger to buy. What a lot of traders will do is they'll go in and allocate 100% of their capital um, to that entry point and then they'll have one exit point. And what you're doing there is um, you, you're subjecting yourself to a lot of luck because those parameter combinations will ultimately not always be um, uh, will not always be in sync with the data. They won't always work. And so the approach we employ and one that works really well is we cut our capital allocations up and spread them across what are called the parameter um, universe. And so you would have little entries that are starting to take place at let's say 30 on your RSI at 20 at 10 and you work them all the way down and you do the same um, on your exit. So you'll take profits early on and um, as the move intensified in your favor you will take additional profits. And what you effectively do then is you capture the average trade through time and you diversify yourself across what I call the mean reversion curve and this is a much more effective way to control risk. So you position size of course for the uh, a very big loss in future, but you also allocate your capital uh, wisely across the trade. You don't just go into a single entry point or a single exit point. And together that works very well. Um, and then overlays, in addition to that, is um, tail risk hedging strategies. So these wouldn't be available on, on the JSE, but in the US there are lots of volatility products that um, you can trade through, through ETFs. And these, you simply include um, a sort of trend-following momentum-type model on those, and they would capture all big volatility explosions. And typically, those are the ones that suck the entire market um, in, and, and you see those correlation ones. And if you have a sort of three to five percent exposure to those, um, they work very well. And, and the coronavirus sell-off is is a case, um, point in case, or uh, well, case in point. We um, had some allocations to to volatility, and some of those products went up, you know, six, seven, eight hundred 800% in a very short space of time. So that's also a very effective way um, to mitigate the risk. But I think ultimately it's also an allocation thing to the um, strategy as as a whole. Um, You know, in in a great scheme of things, you would only allocate a certain percentage of your portfolio to mean and then you'd hope to have some momentum and other ideas as well. And I think if you do that in full, you're doing a pretty good job of, of controlling risk.
1: So PJ, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying then is if, you, if you're talking about your relative strength index where it drops from 30 to 20 to 10, and you're adding into the trade the whole time on the way down, what you're effectively doing then is adding to a trade that's losing you money at the time. So doesn't that go in a fly in the face of one of those cardinal rules of trading that you should never add to a loser? Sure.
0: So, And, and that, is a, that is a rule that we abide by. It's, it's not something you want to do. You don't want to go out and add to users. What you're instead doing, um, Garth, is you're acknowledging that um, there's a lot of luck involved in trading and anyone who, who says otherwise is is in denial. So there are different ways. We're managing risk here, but we're also in part uh, managing the element of chance. So if you think about an entry point, what typical traders will do is they'll allocate 1% or 5%, whatever the allocation is, and they'll bet that entire allocation on their one entry point. Essentially, they go all in on that entry point, and they'll do the same with the exit point. And um, when we test these models out, we find that parameters are not stable through time. And the parameter here would be, for example, our RSI at 50 is one parameter and RSI at 20 is another. So there's a whole bunch all the way down to close to zero. And so any of those parameters can be relatively lucky or unlucky at a given point in time, um, especially relating to a single stock and and market environment. And the same holds for the exit point. We don't actually know where the the recovery will end. And so to go in and bet your entire stake on one entry point and exit point will ultimately lead to um, real-time performance that no way um, coincides with your expectations from the past. So we are in turn... um, Controlling chance here as well in addition to risk, so when you start to allocate across what's called, you know, the sort of entry parameter set, you capture the average entry price and that is much more robust and stable through time. And when you exit across the exit parameter set, you're also um, capturing a much more robust exit um, condition. And in fact, when you test these models and then you go and trade them live, the probability of realizing results that very closely resemble those that you tested is much much higher and in fact when you do this long enough it's really about predictability you know how confident are you about replicating these results going live and this goes a long way in in achieving those
1: Okay, so, that's, so if I understand you correctly, then what you're really saying is that you're not really averaging down into a trade in the sense you've actually decided up front what your maximum allocation to a position is going to be, and your, exactly. your, your execution of that trade is simply to try and buy it through the bottom of the dip and ultimately achieve an average entry price that is sufficiently far away enough from the mean that you then capitalize on the price snapping back and moving back towards the mean ultimately.
0: That's exactly right, Garth. And, and I mean, you can go quite far down the rabbit hole here because you can take that allocation and then you can start to tell weight which would you know, go against the cardinal rule of not adding to losses. But we know our allocation up ahead of time. So, for example, if your allocation to any one trade is, let's say, 2% of equity, then you could break that up into, I'll enter initial stake, 20% of that 2%, then 30% and the final stake at 50%. And what happens is you, you actually start to have this um, tail weighting effect, which pulls your enterprise further down as the, as the move intensifies.
1: So that's one interesting um, technique that can be added. And there are lots of variations around that. And, and the next question is, then once you've got your entry, so you've, you've been adding on the way down, do you then also start to add on the way up as well? So we'll look to, we'll look to exit them on, on the way up. So we won't
0: um, add to the, push, the position on the way up because our thesis then is, is fulfilling itself. We've had the re- reversion and the probability of um, returns following that um, resembling those in the market are much higher. So our edge in the market persists for about 5 to 10 days and with a sweet spot of around 3 days. So when you start to approach 10 days, you really just move to the market return. And of course, we're hoping to capture return. Greater than than the market return,
1: right? Okay. Now the next question, of course, is then around that risk again. Um, is it's, it's all very well. Like you said, this works 70 to 80% of the time. There are going to be those times where you're averaging in, averaging in, and you've got your full allocation to the trade. Now, presumably, you've obviously now stopped buying at this point, but the sure. price continues to move against you. So let's just think, for example, um, a, a, a Hammerson recently or a Steinhoff, yeah. which everybody will be familiar with, you know, sure. where, where the, clearly the price just continues to move against you and against you and against you, um, irrespective of how far away it is from the mean at what point do you then call it quits and say okay well this trade isn't working for us we have to cut the loss and is there a fixed sort of amount of capital that you are allowed to lose on on a trade like that or is it sure. or do you sort of feel it out on each individual situation you're listening to talking with traders a podcast series brought to you by ig a world leading online trading and investment provider if you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes.
0: No, So I think um, upfront you need to decide how much risk you're willing to take if these things go to zero and you should be comfortable with that, although that's um, you a know, very low probability event. Um, But what's much more important than that is um, selecting the universe that you decide to trade in. So to answer your question, there are no stop losses. If you're going to use a a stop loss, then a catastrophic type stop loss works well at about 50%. So when a stock's lost 50%, then the trade return stream and drawdown aren't um, too badly affected. If you go and implement stop losses of 10, even 20%, you'll double drawdown and and halve um, return stream. So it's not something that works. We could implement a systems-wide stop loss or catastrophic stop loss, um, but we don't employ any of those. And and the reason for that is, we focus on very specific um, trade universe. Now, if you think about mean reversion, as we alluded to earlier, the biggest risk to us is tail risk. That's what you're talking about now. That's the probability that these stocks just keep going in one direction against us. The probability of encountering those types of moves is much, much higher in the small cap space. In fact, it's so high, that mean reversion starts to break down and you're really better off um, applying some sort of chain following model. And the mid cap universe, it's still um, relatively risky so the probability of encountering those types of moves increases. When you start to move into the high cap and ultra high cap space, the probability of Apple um, seeing you know 30, 30 day down move without any intraday pop um, is highly unlikely. There are just so many players involved. You have all your speculators, your hedges, your intraday guys, your high frequency. And so um, the probabilities, although in theory you can see it go all the way to zero, uh, in theory you'll find um, that there's enough volatility on the way down for an exit point and so we would just wait for some reversion and, and typically um, that can be as small as a, a brief intraday pop to the upside um, that would take us out. But there are painful trades because they tend to be held much much longer than your winners the winners just work and in and it reverts and you are, the losses can work against you and in fact of course some of my worst trades did um precisely that so it's the universe that's that's important and then the position sizing and um, that you're willing to um, put on and and expect you know possibly one of these to go to zero and then very importantly Multiple entry and and exit points um, along the way. So some would be very close to market. Some would be a bit further. And That almost guarantees that you're relieving or unwinding exposure as as the move unfolds.
1: Right. And and when you talk about position size, um, you know you've you've got what you've got about what four and a half million dollars that you manage at the moment. Is that right?
0: Sure. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So so. so so in terms of that four and a half million dollars, I mean, what's the maximum then that you would allocate to one individual position?
0: Sure. So I mean if you think um, well, one of the family offices will be a good example. They they trade a million dollars through through the platform. So their starting point is and, and I'm just gonna chat about the US here, but it's the same it's the same process on on the JSC. We have strategies that trade the top um, two thousand most liquid uh, counters, the top 1,500, the top 1,000, and the top 750. So strategies are spread across all those universes. The top 750, um, obviously, are, are large-cap counters, so we put on quite a bit more uh, risk there. And then as you spread out into um, you know the top 2,000 where they're, they're less liquid, we put on um, less risk. And so these types of, of accounts will trade strategies in all those universes. And each of those models will put on different... Types of position sizes, so they're not all equivalent. But if you look at the the portfolio from a high level, I was in fact just looking at it now. um, The position size per individual counter, on the whole, when you've included all the models, they're 90 in this particular account. Um, There's about 0.33%. So they're in fact very, very small position sizes. But keep in mind, you could have a number of those in the same position, so they could increase and how far you're willing to go with that is, is really um, dictated by your, your criteria and your objective. You know, a pension fund that cannot withstand drawdowns exceeding 10% of demand, a very different position size um, as opposed to Leverage PJ who is happy to have 30% drawdown. So, it is individual and it is very
1: um, customized to, to the client's um, objectives. Okay, so that, that that I think maybe also leads to to my next question is, uh, do you take leverage? Because, but I think you've kind of answered that. But sometimes yes, and sometimes no. It's
0: very modest. So in the US, um, we in theory are allowed to to gain leverage of, of two times, um, but in in reality, we we seldom see above one. So probably eighty ninety percent of the time, no leverage, and then we'll have these spikes where they go up to about one and a half times. That's the same pretty much on on the JC. So. We are willing to put some leverage on um, when we present it with, with an abundance of, of opportunity, but as you know, Garth, it, it works both ways and anything much beyond two um, personal things is suicide in, in the market.
1: Yeah, I, I I agree with that. I mean, I struggle to sleep well at night if I've ever got more than one and a half to two times leverage on on my account at any one time. And I suppose that also comes with age. Maybe we've worn enough scars earlier on in our careers to know that when you go to bed with three, four, five times leverage, you can wake up very unhappy the next morning sometimes.
0: Well, I think you know any any type of mastery in in any field um, requires making all the painful mistakes. <laughs> Yes. I can say I've made all those mistakes. I've been around the block. You know, I've done the three, four, five times leverage. And invariably, um, it's uncomfortable to trade, but ultimately, you're caught with something that does your 50% move in and takes you out. So um, yeah, 100% agree.
1: Yeah. The next question then is with the strategy, I mean, we've, we've spoken about it in terms of buying and looking to buy the, the, the aggressive moves to the downside, away from the mean, et cetera. But do you use the same strategy on the short side as well?
0: That's a, yeah. That's an interesting question. And um, shorts and longs are, are um, actually don't behave the same way. For the most part, they do. Um, but you know, fear is a much more powerful emotion. We're exploiting. You know, it's all based on behavioural finance. So we're exploiting human emotion, and fear is a very powerful emotion. Bottoms are actually quite easy to to uncover. If you look at any one chart, they're, they're last. I mean, if you think of big bottoms in the market, there. Typically, you've got to read to be a buyer at the bottom. Um, tops are very different. You know, it's very hard to find any indicator or algorithm that can isolate every top in the market because greed is just not as powerful as as fear. Um, in fact, there's something called um, prospect theory, which was developed by, by um, Kahneman. He won a Nobel Prize for his work in, in behavioral finance, and he's proven that, um, that a loss to us is um, twice has twice the effect on us on us as the same size gain. So Using is very hard and you have to deal with models on the long side quite differently. Typically um, a lot of the tail risk resides in the long side. You just need to think of coronavirus and um, so you need overlays in there that, that protect for it um, and oftentimes they're quite a bit more rewarding because there are assets that are held by these companies. So you have this big boost to the downside and then you tend to see um, good recoveries. Now on the short side Um, Returns aren't as great, Um, in fact, they're probably about half of what you'll see um, from the long side and to uncover them, typically, you're going to hold out a little bit longer than than a long trade, so you'll you'll want to see the stock trend for some time before you'll consider putting on shorts. And so, there are subtle differences, but for the most part, the algorithms are are already quite similar. And I love seeing that when I test models because it does point to um, very strong robustness. It's difficult to find a set of rules that you can just reverse from long to short and see similar performance. But ours are, are pretty close to that by some, some minor changes.
1: Yeah. And a, a classic example recently, I guess, has got to be Tesla, where that stock's just gone up and up and it's the, squeezed all of the shorts out. And yeah, it yes, it's moved very far from the mean, but it's just continued to go higher and higher as the shorts have been squeezed further and further. And yes, eventually the price did crack, and it did drop by about I don't know, twenty or thirty percent quite quickly. Sure. But boy oh boy, if you had been too early on that short, you were absolutely carried out as that price spiked up into the stratosphere. Well, that's right,
0: and I think that's a problem for a lot of short traders. I mean, if you think of the big short, you you probably watched that movie. Yeah. You um, the final year you had to hang on to those positions of losing investors. You know, it really does. It's not an easy thing to do in in the market. Um, and as a whole, I think markets have a much stronger tendency to rise over the long term. You know, companies are actively trying to make profits. Um, the central banks support markets, etc. So because of that, um, it it does make sense to to um, make lower allocations to the short end if we're uncomfortable with those sorts of, of moves.
1: Yeah. Now, something else, um, PJ, just to veer away slightly from the, uh, this topic is the time of frame uh, Time frame you're talking about. You mentioned that your holding time is typically three to five days on a, on any given trade. And within that sure. time, you've got your results. Um, but the strategy that you're referring to is also quite, kind of unique in that you don't necessarily get these types of spikes away from the mean every single day. So okay. how often do you enter a trade? I mean, how, how many... I don't know, in, in an average year or an average month, how many trades does your strategy give you uh, over the course sure, yeah. of, let's say, over a year?
0: Well, again, it, it depends on account size. But um, And I, I guess just taking a step back, that's one element of, of the approach that, that um, really is quite appealing is the fact that we do spend so much time in cash. Cash is actually, well, especially in, in South Africa, an important components of the return stream. We can spend as much as 85-90% of our time in cash and then we'll go in and allocate funds when the edges um, present themselves. So you can certainly go through periods where you're not being active and then suddenly there's a flurry of of activity. Now, depending on account size, um, you know, if you're looking in the US, a million dollar type account will be doing 1,000 trades a month. um, So really a lot of trades. Um, On the JSC, a, a million Rand type Uh, sized account, would probably be doing 100 to 300 trades in a month, um, depending on the risk profile that that the client's chosen. Now, a lot of those trades are not, um, remember, unique. You could have a single stock that's moved um, aggressively to the downside, and each little entry point would be considered a trade um, through that move. Um, And so, those obviously contribute to the trade count, um, but you could, I guess, step back and say it was really one trade in, in one stock.
1: Yeah. Okay. I guess that's the, that's the question really is that you, cause you're right. If you've entered a hundred times, but you've gone in, in a, you know, it's still one stock and it's one position and one effectively one big trade. That's yeah. I suppose what I'm trying to get at. Um, yeah, cause, cause also in mean, what you, what you're talking about. And I, I love this. You say you're in, in cash 85 to 90% of the time. And you know, what I've often said to my clients is that you want to almost trade the way that a leopard hunts. Um, and we know that a leopard is a fast, more successful hunter than a lion. A lion goes after you know, a lot of prey and doesn't catch much of it. Whereas yeah. a leopard is very, very selective. It'll only make the attack when it's certain of getting a result. and, and a kill. So what you're doing yeah, you you is want, you exactly that type of approach. You, you, you trade like a leopard rather than a lion.
0: Well, exactly. You want, you, want to walk, you, want to, you want to get involved in the market when the money's lying on the floor. You walk over and pick it up. But it's much more than that. Garth. this is actually supported by uh, really a lot of extensive testing. So if you look at the market um, as a whole, um, in the short term specifically, 90% of the time it really is and really does move more or less randomly, which gets all these efficient market hypothesis guys so excited. it it really does resemble a bulk curve to a large extent, but every so often you find that um, that starts to break down when irrationality enters the marketplace. So market participants are mostly rational, and then a big dose of news will hit the market and they start to become a little bit irrational, um, which is why um, this year's actually in the US been um, one of our best years. There's a lot of volatility, a lot of irrationality around, and you only really want Mm -hmm. to get involved when those edges are in your favor. For the most part, they aren't,
1: um, despite what others will say fascinating it's just such an interesting conversation i mean we are running short of time but i'm going to push this interview out a little bit longer because i'm really enjoying what you're saying and i think the listeners are are probably likely to find this very interesting as well something i've asked all of the guests on this podcast series is around their best trade and worst trades Um, and most of us in the market have a story or some memorable trades that are either best or worst trades. so let's start with your uh, let's start with your worst trade what what was your worst trade and how did that happen
0: So, you know, I think um, through time now, um, you know, I've been actively trading these for um, well over 10 years. So, you know, I think we've probably tallied up, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of trades, possibly even millions. So it's been quite a unique position in the sense that we trade in in the short term. So there have been a lot of painful trades and obviously a lot of good trades along the way. But certainly I would say um, my best trade would have to be in South Africa, the resource sector. In fact, the worst trade as well. That's our volatile sector, um, and we, we had loaded up very, very heavily into, into resources across the entire resource um, sector, almost. And some news came out. I can't um, recall exactly what it was, but um, the following morning they all popped 20 percent of upside, and we, we just had such an incredible windfall in, in gains. And those don't happen often, but when they do, they're, they're great fun.
1: OK. Fantastic, and and, and and yeah. Carrying on, what was the next? And and sorry, so so
0: and, and then the worst. If you're wanting to hear the worst, would uh, have to be actually last year um, on the JSC, I don't know if you recall, Palladium uh, had a, enjoyed an enormous bull run to upside. Um, inflats obviously did very well out of that, and a lot of the deep value funds in South Africa um, that hadn't done well for extended period captured that move. We we went short that move, and it resulted in. Our worst drawdown uh, to date, I think it was around negative 18% uh, as a group. And it was one of those moves, um, guys, that we were sort of talking about earlier, um, the tail move that just simply doesn't um, reverse. And I think it went on for 18 trade days, so you know, a month of, of watching the position move um, against you. And that, that was really very challenging. But outside of that, there, there have been a number of other very similar experiences. And... Um, your position size really determines how um, impacted you are by those by those sorts of moves. If you're very impacted, then generally you, you're just trading too big and you, you need to downsize a bit,
1: which we yeah. were doing. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it always comes back to your risk management, doesn't it? Any any disaster in the market invariably comes back to um, some sort of risk management failure if your position's too big or you don't have a, a point at which you call it quits. So that's I, I use that. It's, that, it's that, everything. Is, if you... If you
0: take your eye off, off, off risk, it, it will set its eye on, on you. And um, early on, I think we all um, probably do a fair bit of, of exploring that ourselves. But you learn sooner or later, um, through humility, <laughs> that it really is the game we risk managers after all. Um, it's the one thing we can control. And longevity at this game really is explained by showing up every day. And the only way you can do that is to con- control your risk.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely right. Um, PJ, what advice would you give to someone that was youngster coming into the market now? You mentioned that you got into this industry kind of by accident, but if you were a youngster, you know, you're 20 years old or 18 years old, you want to get involved in the markets. What advice would you give to some youngster coming through now?
0: Well, I think um, for starters, God, there's probably a lot of misleading information out there. Um, you know, brokers um, claiming all sorts of quick profits, charlatans, et cetera, and, and nothing could be, further from the truth, So I think um, you, you really need to have some grounding in, in terms of expectation because otherwise you, you'll just wiggle and die before before you start. It really is a tough game and it's become becoming tougher. And the people you're competing against out there are, are extremely well qualified. They will spend a lot of time analyzing markets and have access to funding and all sorts of things. And, and these are the people that are on the other side of your trade. Um, and so you, you want to be sure to ground yourself in quite a tough journey initially. I mean, I personally don't know anyone that just goes out and, and makes a bunch of money. And um, generally, it's going to be a three to five year process before you find your feet. So I think in today's age, um, you know, I think a bare minimum of sort of bachelor's, computer science, mathematics, one of those fields, and certainly uh, some time in in the programming world. It's all moving that way, and you really need to rigorously test your ideas. I think. Technical analysis as a well world is, is, is starting to become more rigorous, and, and things you can't prove are going to fall by the wayside. And once you've got that all under your belt, then I, I think you know, your 10,000 hour or five to 10 years, you're probably going to have your first little models that are working. Um, and from there, you'll grow and evolve and create your unique edge. But certainly, you need to ask yourself, How passionate are you about the markets? And I know without a shadow of doubt. Without the passion I have for the markets, I I would have stopped a long time ago. It's the only thing that keeps you going in this business because you will face drawdown, you will face failure, and you will face loss. Um, And to get up after those episodes um, is challenging without a good dose of of passion.
1: Yeah, passion is such a big thing. And I I think it's not only trading. I think in anything in life, if you're passionate about what you do, you're going to do it well. It's what drives you to keep going when the times get tough and certainly this business does dish out tough times from time to time. And then mm-hmm. last question or second, last question for you, PJ is um, regarding books. Do you do a lot of reading? Have you done a lot of reading of trading books in your career? And if so, sure. do you have two or three books that you could recommend that you think are a must read for anybody listening to this podcast?
0: Well, I think um, like most of us, when you start um, you go out on, on a reading binge, so I certainly, um, I've read my fair share of trading books, and, and through that could um, would definitely recommend you know all the Jack Schwager uh, Market Wizards. I, I love those. Um, Way of the Turtle by Curtis Faith, I think, is a, a fantastic book. Um, Van, Van Clark, there there were a bunch, um, but certainly I think the Market Wizards. If you're going to read anything, those those are great. Um, outside of that, I think nowadays, God, I. I don't actually read much, you know, I've got the testing infrastructure, I have a relatively good understanding of how markets work so I mostly spend my time um, researching um, the markets uh, through insights, daily observed and through performance from existing
1: models. Okay. Interesting that you mentioned Jack Schwager and market wizard series. Those books have come up in many of these interviews and uh, he's actually coming up with a new book. It's called market. I think it's something like anonymous market wizards or market wizards. You've never heard of or something along That's those right. lines. Exactly. Anyway, yeah. he's been tweeting it out quite a lot lately. And I, I've actually put myself on the list to get a, a copy of it on the audio book. The moment that it's published, it's due to come yeah. out on the 3rd of November. So um, yeah, you might find that interesting. And I'm sure anyone else listening to this podcast will also probably find that book very, very interesting. I'm certainly looking forward to to it being published.
0: I've got my eye on it too. So absolutely.
1: Yeah. Last question then for you, PJ. Um, you mentioned, obviously you manage money, you manage money for, for family offices and others. Um, if someone wanted to get in contact with you to invest in uh, or to, to give you some money to manage based on the strategy that you very eloquently t- told us about in this interview. How can they do that?
0: Well, um, Garth, very easily, um, southernresearch.com is, is our website, so they can find um, me on there, and um, you also find the detail of the platforms that, that are on offer There's a blog on there that um, I I put together every month or so, and there's a newsletter where I release all sorts of of interesting things, and there's some demos available as well if you want to give those a free trial. And I think just to be clear, Garth, I don't. In fact, manage the the funds on, on behalf of clients. They get access to the platform, and through the platform, you're able to very easily engineer, test, trade, and implement automatically a portfolio in the market. So my job is to ensure that you understand the research that drives the platform and then um, ultimately, how to to use the platform, and then from there you would, would do your own
1: thing okay, super thanks for making that uh, making that clear to us and you know, regarding your blog, I mean I subscribe to it and I, I receive it every month. I thoroughly enjoy reading it. It's a nice short, quick read, it's easy to digest and um, anyone listening to this podcast that is really interested in markets and is keen to follow PJ's work, um, I suggest subscribing to that blog it's well worth it uh, and as you said sutherlandresearch.com is your is your website that's it for this interview pj thank you so much for joining me uh, it's really been an absolute pleasure talking to you we've gone a little bit over time but i think it's well well worth it um i really appreciate it and, and i look forward to speaking to you again at some stage in the future and keeping in touch
0: god thank you it's, it's really been fun and uh, well done on, on putting this together it's great work and I'm sure your, your listeners are getting a lot of value out of this. So thank you for having me on, on your show.
1: Super, thanks and you stay well. You too, hey. cheers. cheers guys. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.